Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Cisco Talk Podcast. I'm your host, James Azar. We have a great show today. One of my favorite people, like when we get together, these conversations just go on forever and ever and ever is going to be joining me. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. But before we do that, one, you've heard of our sponsors. Without them, the show wouldn't be possible. So make sure to check them out. Two, March 17th, the ultimate supply chain webinar with my great friend, Gray Meyer over at Hollard Insurance Company in Australia, Chris Roberts and Nick Sorensen, the CEO of Wistic. We're going to be hosting it March 17th. The link is in the show notes. So make sure you check it out. It's going to be a really, really fun webinar, a lot of interactiveness. So you'll want to be there March 17th, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Join me, Chris, Gray and Nick as we talk about supply chain management for CISOs from the CISO perspective, real takeaways, no sales guys, you know how this works. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. You're not going to miss it. Here we go, folks. In three, two, one. From the cyber hub bunker and studio, you're listening to the CISO talk podcast. No sales. No bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. I never want that music to stop, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to jam out to it. Everyone, welcome to this week's CISO Talk Podcast. Ryan Glover, he's a CISO on Garden Leave which means he's gardening. Like, I think you and Gary Hayslip are gardening right now. Yeah, I, I, gardening, gardening digital content, growing habaneros, <laughs> you know, shoveling snow to uncover my garden, all, all of that. <laughs> How are you doing, Ryan? Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, you know, it's taken a while, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally be able to, to jump on with you. I know it's awesome. So when people say, you know, what's garden leave? So you're doing some gardening. You're you have a job. You can't talk about it, but you're almost there. Yeah, I actually had to answer that question yesterday. Uh, I, I went somewhere and they're like, "Are you are you employed?" And I'm like, "Um, that's complicated." I'm like, 
no, I'm unemployed, but I'm getting paid and I'm employed. I just can't work yet. And they're just like, I'm like, they, they ended up saying, I'm just going to put decline to answer because they didn't quite, <laughs> un- didn't quite understand the whole thing. And I probably didn't do a great job answering it either. But yeah, so I'm, I'm actually sitting out. Uh, I'm going to be starting a CISO for another company uh, in the spring. And uh, yeah, so for the next, you know, I have three more months left. I, I'm sitting around, not really sitting around. I'm, I'm learning a lot of things. I'm doing a lot of fun stuff. Uh, talking with folks like yourself and other CISOs, so it's it's been it's been a, a fun couple of months so far. Yeah, it's um, I, I always love that whole thing where you're being paid to sit at home now. You, so, who gets paid to sit at home? NBA player, NFL players, Major League Baseball players, and CISOs. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're in great company. Exactly. <laughs> we're gonna pay you a full salary, and by the way, you can't do anything. It's like. Hey, I just got paid to draw this picture. I just got paid to. Yeah, I get. I'm a professional book reader, note taker. You know, uh, I'm getting paid for this podcast right now. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a webinar taker. Like I'll sign up to anything right. at this point. I I just have to keep myself busy. Um, Ryan, so for um, our audience who's not familiar a little bit with you, can you give us? Can you share a little bit about your background and how you got? your journey to becoming a CISO and breaking into cybersecurity? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I jumped into technology uh, in the late 90s. Uh, didn't really go to school. I just jumped in and, and was self-taught. So started really doing consulting and, and really cutting my teeth uh, in, in the consulting world, which, you know, when you reflect back on it, I, I think that's the true, like, DevOps back, back then because I would be – you know, at at a uh, at my company, and they're like, "Here, you have to go do this HPUX, or you have to go do this firewall installation, or you have to go do this, you know, random technology project." So you had to wear every hat known to man. Uh, and and during that course, you know, security was always a part of that. So, you know, I learned a lot about firewalls and access control and and um, identity identity management. So, you know, over the course of those years, this profile of of, of knowledge around security started building up. Uh, then I jumped out of the consulting world. Actually, ironically, I jumped out of, out of the consulting world because I had a, a side business roasting coffee. And, and I was roasting 4,000 pounds of coffee a month. And I'm like, hey, I can't go travel to do consulting work because this little side hustle coffee business is taking too much, too much of my time. Uh, so I went, I went native and, and started working for a you know, a, a real company, right? Um, <laughs> and from there, you know, you started to see th- there always was this convergence of like infrastructure and security, but security was always, you know, in, in the in the early 2000s, it was like your second job. You had to deliver infrastructure and, you know, ensure availability, but security and confidentiality was always like, yeah, we'll get to that. And then all these breaches started happening. So my focus kept on, you know, veering towards the security aspect of it. And then, you know, as my career progressed and I started taking on more and more teams, you know, I, I really started to take that that um, that higher view of, of, of infrastructure to say, hey, security needs to be not a synthetic team, but a real team uh, in order for it to be really um, a priority for, for not only my teams, but the, the organization as a whole. 
Uh, so that naturally evolved into uh, me actually taking on both infrastructure and security. And once you really start creating both practices, you realize you have no time for infrastructure anymore because there's so much to do in security when you really have to put a focus on it. So uh, that eventually evolved into uh, you know, me building a program, taking it on the role of CISO and, you know, uh, the rest of this history, I guess. Did you have any mentors in the process of kind of, you know, going into the CISO role or kind of like from a, from a technology standpoint to the security standpoint, was there anyone who kind of mentored you into that or was it all your self curiosity? A lot of it was self curiosity. I would reach out to some folks, you know, as you do engagements, you know, I, I would do a red team on a regular basis, and and I, I've developed some really good relationships from from that. So there would be folks that I would bounce ideas off off of. Uh, when I took on the role of CISO, I did reach out to others, uh, and I'm, I'm part of like a community. So you, you do have this community of of CISOs, which you know it, it's it's a, a wild group of characters to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we we do help each other from that regard. And then I had some just some some peers who were either in the role before, or those that I really valued their um, their advice and, and and their perspective, and they weren't necessarily in a CISO role, but you don't always want someone in the same role or, or the same like focus as you. Um, you know, you often find people who have no knowledge whatsoever of what a CISO does, and you throw a problem at them, and they have a, a completely different perspective that you know maybe you never even thought of. Yeah, you know, I'm doing a lot of mentoring right now. And one of the things I keep trying to tell people is it's great to have a mentor, but have self-curiosity first. Have the passion and the drive to do it yourself. Right. Before you look for mentors. Because, you know, mentoring is 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 a very, um, I think, difficult thing for a lot of people to do. Yeah. When, when, I, when I mentor people, you know, we have this coach and coachee agreement. Like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'll kind of guide you. And this is for any sort of coaching. Like, um, you know, I, I did Ironman coaching. And I would give people workouts. I would actually tell them, here's your workout. And I remember one, one time the guy's like, I don't want to do it. I don't feel like doing this. And I'm like, then don't do it. I'm like, you're the one doing it. I go, but you asked a reflective question afterwards. I said, what I want you to do is think about why you're doing this. What's the purpose? And give me three reasons why and call me back later. So <laughs> he actually, he, he calls me back seven hours later. He's like, I'm a grown man. I started crying because I thought about the three reasons. And like, that's, that's the whole point of all this. Like when, when you get someone to mentor you or, or you're a mentee, you have to have a purpose for it, right? Going back to like, you're not gonna waste my time. I'm not gonna waste your time. You know, what, what's the purpose of this relationship? Um, otherwise, you know, we're, ju we're just, you know, spinning our wheels and there's no real point of, of having that. Um, I, I, I've been, since I'm on garden leave, I've, I have been reaching out to folks to mentor them. So I'm setting up some of those sessions. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to some new folks because that was a main part of my role before was just mentoring a lot of people outside of my organization and really growing them. And that's, that's, it's, uh, that's a fun, it's a fun role to have, uh, when, when, when there's that successful like relationship between the two. Well, you're going to join us on CISO Thursdays. I know in the next few weeks, you and I will get that 
signed, sealed, delivered after we finish recording today. But um, you'll, you'll be on CISO Thursdays, which, which are awesome, by the way, because we get a lot of people who are looking for mentorship and looking for, you know, some support and some ideas. And, you know, I don't always have good ideas. Like, I, I literally, like, this liberal art degrees. I think that's the biggest ripoff of colleges ever put together is a liberal arts degree. Yeah, I, I, I come from the street, so I have, I have the street perspective. <laughs> Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, building a team. And, you know, you're about to endeavor on a new role, and you're undoubtedly going to have to build a brand new team and hire people to fill roles. You're, you're looking as you build the program. What are some of the key qualities and skills that you look for in people you're hiring? It's, it's, uh, the first thing I always look for is like, like, how do you think, how do you approach a problem? Right. Um, and I'm going to ask you hypothetical questions and I, I would love when, when I used to interview, I would always have someone else with me and like, I would play that person off of the candidate. Like I'd be like, Hey, so Mike here just, you know, did X, Y, Z and violated every policy, you know, in the company, what what would you do with that? Like, and just like go with it, but always play it off the person next to me. Um, a, a lot of the questions I'll, I'll ask have no real technical answer. And it's more about your approach and your methodology. And also like, what questions are you asking me? If any, because if I ask, if I ask you this obscure question about like a ransomware attack, and you never once asked me a question. You just go into your, you know, troubleshooting steps for it. You know, then, you know, th- that could be a red flag that maybe you're a hero and, and and you're not truly understanding, you know, how to approach this problem. Um, so really, like that that that's one of the main things I look for from, from a technical perspective. You know, if you could think, I can't teach you to think, but I can teach you anything else, right? Like like everyone has the ability ability to learn, but your approach to problems, you know, a lot of times that's part of your personality and just the way you are. Um, so I, I go after it from that perspective. Um, the other thing I really like when it comes to a security engineer analyst, you know, psychops person is just the ability to, to develop or read code. You don't have to be like a, a full stack developer, but um, my old team, they were all developers. Like, and that, you know, being able to work with APIs, being able to just read code or, or look at things, you know, on GitHub that are open source to be like, oh, you know, yeah, th- this is this is a, a good tool or this is something that we don't have to buy. We, we could take this and augment it to build our own. We, we would often do that, you know, build build new solutions because existing ones either didn't do what they say, say they could do or were kind of limited from what you know, we needed them to do. Um, so, but ultimately, the, the main thing is like I, I want to know how you think, and if you're more of a cultural fit. Uh, but the one thing you don't want is someone who has a big ego. Like I, I've worked with those folks in the past as well, and you know, I'm 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 laid back, and I'll sit back and watch and read and observe, and you know, it's. If someone's coming off like, you know, they know everything, like anyone who says they're a subject matter expert and they're not learning something new every day, then they're lying to themselves. 
Um, so you, you don't want that person either who's going to come and just like disrupt the entire team. Yeah, I think most m- most of us would agree with the fact that a big ego doesn't always serve us well. Right. Um, insecurity. Not to say they don't exist on, on, on teams, but, you know, where I've seen big egos predominantly in my career has been in like the big fortune companies. Right. People that have kind of been there for five, seven, ten years. And and work right. their way up. That that's where I tend to see the ego. When you t- let's talk a little bit about the CISO style leadership. What qualities and skills do you think CISOs need to have in order to really successfully, you know, lead their teams? You have to be a chameleon. Like it, it, I think it all depends on on every, every day, right? Who you're talking to, who you're dealing with. You know, if you're dealing with your team, like you, you need to. I think overall, you have to be a good active listener, no matter who you're dealing with. And that's a skill, and, and that's even outside of, you know, being a CISO. That's a skill that so many people suck at. And like, like I work on it all the time, and I, I still suck. I suck at it. Because, you know, I'm talking to someone the other day, and actually he's talking to me, and he's still talking, and then I interrupt him. And I hate that. Because it means that I stopped really listening to him because I was too busy thinking about what I wanted to tell him. And I, I think that, that skill will help you truly understand either the other person's perspective or, or really what they're trying to tell you. Uh, not, you know, not the little bits that you pick up as you're trying to think about your response. Um, so I think being able to truly active listen will help you, you know, when you're working with accounting or HR or your team. Um, so that's, that's one of the, it, it, it's so silly because everyone probably thinks, you know, a CISO should be this ultimate hacker and have, you know, knowledge, you know, top down of, of, of the entire stack and, and, you know, be this security guru. But, you know, active listening is is, is so important. Well, the, the role of the CISO has evolved. It used to be that a CISO had a very small team. And you're right. He needed to have all those skills because if you didn't have them, you probably weren't going to get everything you wanted done done. But in today's world where security is getting more funding and the role of the CISO is now more executive and across the organization, the active listening skills far more superior. You know, I've been watching a lot of posts of people who say, you know, there's a trend right now. What do you do in your first hundred days of a CISO? I was on a, a panel a few weeks ago and someone asked me that. And, and they go, what, what's your plan for the first 100 days if you go to a new organization? And I'm like, listen. Yeah. That's my when, plan. Listen. When, when, you know, when I was, you know, speaking with the CEO of the company that I'm going to, he posed a similar question. You know, you come in here, you know, it's the first 30, 60 days. What are you doing? And I said, honestly, I'm like, I'm, I'm building relationships. I'm talking to people. He's like, so you're not deploying technology right away. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm talking to people. I'm like, because I want to understand, you know, what's important, what's not. You know, you, obviously, like, if you're bleeding and you have nothing, you're going to deploy something, right? Like, right. But the, the, the key strategy will be, you know, talking to all the key stakeholders to understand, you know, what's your perspective of security? What's worked in the past? You know, where, where are all your dead bodies at? I, I want to know, what do I need to know about, like, right now? that is important to you that if it's compromised, your business goes away. 
Um, but it's building those relationships. And he was like, wow, you're the, like, you were the only person to say that. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the, you know, the inverse? Like I come in and, you know, just deploy controls everywhere, break every business process known to man. And rather than creating this culture of like collaboration, I'm creating this culture of fear because I'm telling you everything you're doing wrong and like locking everything down. I'm like, that's, that's going to get me out of here in a hundred days. It's not going to really make me be successful. Um, so it, it's, it's again, a lot of this is like soft skills, right? People, people think our, our job is so technical, but it, it's, it's relationships, listening and, and like observing at first. Yeah. I like the idea of, of listening and observing in relationships. That's um, someone asked, you know, um, we did, we did CISO Thursdays. And I think I told you this when we were talking a few weeks ago, Someone asked me to go, James, what SIM tool do you use in your sock? And I'm like, should find no. I don't know. You know, when I go into my sock, the last thing I ask my people is, tell me about the tool, our SIM tool, and show me its features because, you know, I need to be this hands-on technical guy. I need to be and address my people. You know, the hardest role to maintain in a sock is your tier one, tier two analyst. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, right? It's... it's, it's I, like they get destroyed on a daily basis and it's it's like groundhog day for them every day yeah but you know you're not bill murray and you, you didn't find love and now now your days you know moved on it's the same day over and over and over again um and yeah i i, I feel for those guys and you know that's i think that's why there's there's a reason why they're the mssps have taken on that role because they realize your traditional employee doesn't last in that, in that role. Well, and, and, and the cost of it, I mean, the cost, you know, we, we, we outsource some of our sock work and we have a few people in house. Um, because as much as I love the MSSPs I work with, they don't live my business. Right. Yeah. You have to have some responsibility and accountability, right? Like, like, uh, funny, funny story though. I was I was actually talking to someone yesterday about this, and you know, talking about why you need to have eyes on glass with the MSSP, you know, twenty four seven, three sixty five. And I joked, I'm like, well, we were going back and forth. I'm like, well, what you don't realize is we do have an agreement with the attackers that they will only attack between eight and five. So we don't have to worry about non-business hours. We don't have to worry about the weekend. It's, it's an agreement. It's like the old British like fighting agreement. Like you must fight like a gentleman. It must be fair. And these are the rules. Um, yeah, th those don't exist. It's twenty-four-seven. I, I I used to do security awareness training, and I would ask people, "How often do you think we get attacked?" And they would be like, "Oh, you know, twenty times a day, a thousand times a day." I'm like, "We get attacked every second. Like literally every second, someone's trying to do something." And it doesn't end. No. And and like they don't stop on Christmas. Right? right. Like they don't take Saturdays and Sundays off. Right. You I, know. Actually it was fun, funny, like it was it was when uh WannaCry came out. And it was a Saturday. I was at my kids' soccer game and you know, we had we had a joint call to say, All right, here's our approach for fixing WannaCry. And the one person on the phone, you know, kind of jokingly said, well, it's nice out. It's like Mother's Day weekend or something like that. You know, can we push this off? And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, 
when, when we're unable to trade on Monday, we'll just we'll tell everyone that it was warm out that weekend and we didn't want to fix this massive vulnerability. Um, yeah, never ends. Yeah, you know, the, we'll, we'll just call up the hackers and just be like, hey, listen, um, um, I think what WannaCry was North Korea, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, hey, Kim Jong-un, can you pull your guys off of our network until Monday and can we restart this thing on Monday? Right. You know, we'll pick it up from there. Don't worry about it. Exactly. We need, we need referees to, like, blow the whistle and tell them to stop for a little yeah. bit. Yeah, there's a flag on the play holding <laughs> a number 65 offense, 10-yard penalty, timeout, yeah. first down, right? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's – um. When I, you know, that's one of the things about security is it's a never ending cycle, right? Like our battles are constant. The cycles, we don't, we don't, you know, run a play for 15 seconds, then huddle up for 40. You know, it's, it's continuous. There, there's no breathers. I, I consider it to be, you know, we talk about security. You talk about it from a marathon, like an Ironman or a triathlon perspective. You're, you know, you're doing a lot of different things over a period of time. Um, and, and it's funny you bring up that analogy. Like I, I would tell people during a race, anything and everything could go wrong. And what you have to have is some sort of mitigation plan for what you're going to do. And you may just do stuff on the fly. I, I mean, I remember my stomach was not processing anything. So I took my entire nutrition plan, which was planned out for months and I threw it away and I just started doing something else. Because, I, like, your body's telling you, hey, I don't like this, and I'm not going to work the way that, that we're, you know, we've agreed to work during this time. So you always have to, you know, assess your options, and if it's not working, you know, try something else. Yeah, try something else, do something else, be something else. I, I tell myself every week, how am I reinventing myself again this week. So how do you not get complacent? I think the worst thing in security is complacency. Oh, if you're complacent, yeah, like, I mean, I had a great team, amazing team, awesome program, but we never just sat back and like drank beers and like, oh, we're so secure. This is so great. <laughs> Instead, you, you have to look at it like, all right, you have to put on your black hat, right? How would I break this? Like whenever you put anything in, like that, you have to look at it from that perspective. If I wanted to break this, how am I going to do it? I mean, I, I do that here at home, but it's my kids who do it. Like I'll implement something and then my kids will bypass it somehow. And then I'm like, how did you break that? And then I would talk to them. Um, so you, you have to like, you have to take that approach. Um, otherwise, yeah, if you sit back and just like, you know, observe and like smile and, and like, you know, pat yourself on the back, that's when you're going to get popped either from the inside or the outside. Right, your daughter's going to be the youngest ever to get a network plus cert, right? Uh, I hope so. She's uh she's going after it. I love it. How yeah, old is she? Uh she's 10. And she's So, she's, for, she's, so, she's so for those for those listening or watching, your 10-year-old is studying to get a network plus. If you're too lazy to get a cert, like smack yourself in the face three times. Right. And and like so going back to like the coaching and mentoring thing, like I'm trying to push some, some folks right now to, to get certified. And I'm like, listen, if you read one page, just one page of this book for the certification, you, you read one page of this security book or, or this white paper or whatever, 
you are better off than where you were the day before. And and don't don't bullshit me that you don't you don't have time. Like I, I would go through, you know, my schedule, even back you know back before when, uh, you know, when I was working. Like I mean, I was going to school. I was training for an Ironman. I was coaching Ironman athletes. I was working at a trading firm, and I have kids and travel sports. And people are like, "Well, I don't understand. Like you're 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 not normal." I'm like, "No, I'm I plan my stuff accordingly, and it's important." So, like I would always tell them, if it's important to you, you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. Yeah, I mean, finding excuses is one thing. Making excuses is another. And then taking accountability is something completely different. One thing I like to do is always ask people, like, what's one thing you've taken accountability for? So that's a different way of, you know, it's a different way of asking them, you know, tell me about a time you you made a mistake and what, what you did and how you handled it. I hate those interview questions. I despise right. them. I hate when I'm asked that question. I think that's a, like a really generic so i'll be like tell me about a time um you held yourself accountable for something and what was it yeah because if they bring you something from their personal life rather than like you you learn so much about a person by giving them a a a non-generic question and actually yeah asking great questions like give you another example like uh, my my son's baseball coach he would ask hey how was practice what's 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 the like 95% of the time, what's, what's the answer to how was your day? How was school? How was practice? Good. And he's like, what, why am I only getting the answer good whenever I ask this question? I'm like, because it's a horrible question. Your question means nothing. I'm like, you know, I, I would ask my daughter, like I, I asked her like, how was school? And when I would get good, like five times, I'm like, all right, I need to change this question. So I asked her, you know, tell me one time today that you were brave or one time where you were afraid, or what's the one thing that you learned today that you're gonna take with you for the rest of your life? And like, you have to ask better questions to, to get real answers. Otherwise, you ask me a bullshit question, I'm gonna give you just like a bullshit answer. Back. Generic bullshit answer, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about cyber. Cause I think, I think you know, as, as practitioners, we have a duty around security. So if you look back at your role as a CISO, um, you know, you said I invest a lot of time on building relationships and active listening and communication. When you look at security as a whole, where do you think, where do you spend the most of your time on um, in security? Is it more on the technical aspect or the relationship aspect? And then how do you really manage manage those two? In my previous role, it, it was primarily on the relationship business side. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I, I had a great team that were, you know, they were extremely technical and, you know, I, I worked with them for over 10 years. So I, you know, there was trust built up there that, you know, I did not have to micromanage them or I did not have to be the one to dictate the solution, you know, from a technical perspective, I, I would, I would pine in on it and, and I would, you know, give my feedback or I would say, no, that's a horrible idea if it was, if I felt it was. Um, but, you know, my focus was primarily on, on that aspect. I think where I'm going, uh, it's going to be probably initially a bit, a bit mix of both, you know, building out a security program. There's going to be, as I mentioned, those relationships that have to be built, but there's going to be 
the technical architect side of it as well and and making uh decisions based off of you know what what i experienced in the past what worked what didn't you know, going back to you know the sock analysts like you know not not doing something like that again um so yeah the, on, on the technical side though i mean i would get involved depending on what was actually happening you know if there's there were incidents that were sensitive uh that's where i would actually remove my team from that because i didn't want them to have to get involved uh say if, if, if there were any further actions that needed to be taken so that's that's very interesting since you're going into a new role i kind of want to deviate for a second if you don't mind All right. not, so so you know, when you look at taking on a new role, and we talked about kind of like the first 100 days, for, for, let's put that all aside for a minute. Talk about evaluating and building a security program. What are like, let's say the top three things you look for from a security perspective that are like, hey, these are the top three things I'm going to, you know, while I'm active listening, while I'm building those relationships, I'm really looking to understand these three things in order to understand where the bleed may come from or where the crown jewels lie. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the first thing is, you know, when you're having these, these discussions is w- what's important, what, what is the most important thing for you to protect to ensure that the business is not impacted or, or that it's functioning? Um, you know, you, you could spend all this time and effort building out a security program, but if it doesn't align with the goals and it, if it doesn't actually protect the business, it could actually impact the business. Like, that's that's the key thing um you know having visibility i i think when, when i'm building a program i, I want to know where are all the assets and do i have visibility into all activity like like that those are two of the most important things um because you can't protect what you don't know and assets are, are not just like laptops and servers and, and infrastructure assets are you know source code repositories they're they're key people they're they're you know office buildings it, it's a lot of that that word is more than just you know what what most people associate it with, um, and just understanding you know what what behavior looks like. So having visibility, so you could build a behavioral pattern, uh, and you know then you could start building out things like alerting based off of those patterns. Uh, I think I think those are some of the important things. Um, you know what what approach I'm going to be taking too is aligning to a framework right away. So there's something like, if if you look at it, the CIS top 20, it's very simple, you know, it's technical controls. And I I believe it's, if if you implement the first five or six controls, you'll have a better security posture than the majority of the firms out there. Because most people fail at number one, which is, you know, do you know what hardware you have? And like, I'm on all these calls, uh, with vendors right now, and you know, a lot are pushing, you know, zero trust this and and UEBA that, but like, most companies don't even know where their assets are. So how are you going to do zero trust if you don't even know what you have? Yeah, I, I have an issue with zero trust. It's it's if you send me an email and zero trust is anywhere in that email, you go to spam and I never see it. Right. Right, because if if you're selling me zero trust, like I feel like zero trust is a bad name for a good idea. Yeah, and and I mean, right now, 
what what is the definition of zero trust? It's whatever you know. If, if you have a new product, it's it's going to be zero trust. Next gen zero trust. You know, throw throw them all together. Well, it's like next gen ML and AI, and we'll get to the buzzwords later in the show. We won't want to give them all away now. I, I actually should have been laying out buzzwords to see if you picked up. <laughs> uh, you know, I pick up on buzzwords all the time. I think it's actually really funny. Um, I, I've built a multi-approach spam um, filtering uh, email system within my emails so that depending on what you use, some of them may make it to a folder that I occasionally check. Like, all right, it's Friday afternoon. I'm drinking scotch. I'm listening to a podcast. I'll go into my, you know, this level one spam folder and see if anything is interesting in there and make someone's Friday. I may reply to one of those if something catches my eye and be like, hey, would love to get on a call. And then I've got level two, three, four. And I learned that from David Nolan, who's the um, uh, deputy CISO over at Aaron's. Right. I had him on the podcast two years ago and um, we were having lunch after the show and he was saying like, James, this is how I do this. And I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm going to take it. And so I now have spam filters that I constantly update with new buzzwords or new things that really irritate me. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I'm just like, okay, this is going to be the same thing. By the way, anytime a company's that breach and you put the name of the company in the subject line, and you're not a .gov email, it's going to spam. See, I, I took a different approach. And uh, again, this, this was at my previous company. I basically said, if the email came from outside, just put it in this gray external email folder, and I'll get to it when, whenever I feel like it, which is usually never. Because if, if I want a solution, I don't like cold calls. I don't like, you know, random emails. I don't like you hitting me up on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of people actually on LinkedIn now I'm getting, Hey, I noticed that your company confidential has been looking at our website and I think we should set up a talk. And I'm like, well, first of all, like you put zero effort into this because there's no such company, uh, that I work for. But, um, yeah, if, if I want something, I probably, I've already done the research. I've already talked with my peers. You know, and if I'm reaching out to you, it's because I'm interested. I, I don't need you to call me. I don't need you to send me an email. Um, I hate those too because depending on what email provider or your policies are, you know, they have all these beacons that then beacon back to them. So they're like, hey, I noticed you opened my email. And it's like, no, it, it just. That's creepy, by the way. When I get someone who sends me like, an email through like HubSpot or Salesforce and it's got the tracking and I open it and then I get an email and says, I saw that you opened my email. I'm like, okay, you and I have zero trust. <laughs> right. right. And, and like, I, I always looked at, you know, Hey, can you strip out these anchor tags or can you, you know, have this thing, this, you know, script uh, or something on your external email provider, look for a zero pixel transparent, like beacon and just strip it out. Um, but it became more of a pain. Uh, I mean, I, I would love to get rid of like all HTML email altogether, but then you're going back to like generic CC mail and people would hate it uh, because they, well, they like they like pictures and, and images in their email. Well, and it's not easy on the eyes, right? But, but like, what's the point of email anymore? So like, so that's very interesting, by the way. 
I, I personally think that the clubhouse revolution is going to be the that technology, that idea of the voice technology and video technology is going to be the new email. I mean, I'll tell you something. I had a vendor reach out to me on LinkedIn the other day, and it wasn't an email. It wasn't a message. It was a voice recording. And it was like, hey, James, I'm so-and-so working at so-and-so. I was wondering if you've got a few minutes. You know, I'd like to learn a little bit about what you and your team are doing about this. Now, I haven't responded yet, but I will. I just I haven't had time. I'll probably respond on Friday. You, you right. are now you are now going to get inundated with voice messages. Might be the case, but it, it was a twenty second voice message. It was personal, right? Mm-hmm. Why do I have a J in my name on LinkedIn? It's how I identify auto spam from a real message. So if you put your middle initial after your first name. Typically, like the auto sales automation tools will pull your first name from LinkedIn. So it'll be like Ryan X, just as an example. And you're like, okay, automated, not a personal message. And then it says confidential in the body of the email. You're like, okay, spam, delete, you know, block even sometimes. Um, and, And yeah, I mean, I do get inundated with messages like you do. But I think voice, what this person did is very creative. I'm going to give him a shot. I feel like that's a great way to approach. It was personal. It was good. I want to hear what he has to say. Uh, I would always get the the picture of someone and they would put, hi, Ryan, I am a real person. And like they would be holding a sign. Uh, and and that, <laughs> but that, that always made me laugh. It, it it just depends. I've seen, I've seen really creative. I think, by the way, going back to your question, though, what is email? Email today is going to be inundated. And I think voice and video messaging is going to be the next big big thing. It takes you 20 minutes sometimes to write an email. It would take you three minutes to do a voice message. Right. So you have to wonder, like, the majority of, of breaches start with email, right? So how, how does that change then? What? How does that attack approach change? Um, because... Unless you have some payload embedded within an image file that somehow you're, you know, pulling down, like, uh, you know, you take that entire vector away, like that—that's huge. Yeah, I don't know that you'll ever take email completely away. Yeah, not not completely, but you know, if if, if it becomes less of the main method for communicating, you know, then you know, attackers might have to pivot to something else. Yeah, you know, and and that's even scarier, right? Like that's a scarier thought to what they would pivot to. Um, Because at that point, we know that you can embed malware in MP3 files and MP4 files and MOV files. Like you and I, you know, we've been around the block a few times. We've seen, you know, uh, people forget LimeWire. But but if you're old enough, LimeWire was essentially just a MP3, MP4 data exchange network that was filled with like viruses and malware and payloads. So really, you know, is going to voice and video more secure? Depending. I think, I think that depends. I mean, there are tools. I mean, the Saudi Prince hacked Jeff Bezos Right. In WhatsApp. Right. 
Well, and and like deep fakes are getting really good, right? Insane good. So, you know, I'm an attacker, and I tell you to do this, right? But let, let's say you have some sort of like clearing process for, you know, wire transfers, and all of a sudden, I, I'm I'm now the CFO, and I hey. Hey James, I need you to send it to this address instead of instead of the ones that you normally use, and it looks legitimate. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm like taking down this note, but it's so true. Deep fakes are. I remember during the election cycle, um, our threat hunting team was looking at deep fakes. And one thing I saw, by the way, was after the deplatforming of President Trump and a lot of different people, and people started moving to Telegram and Signal, there was a ton of deep fakes there, a ton mm-hmm. of them. Like we were getting, we were seeing deep fakes, and we were reporting him immediately to Telegram. We're like, this video's got to go down. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's crazy. Yeah, and I think that's where the video will have to be real-time communication, right? You'll have to actually jump on, like a lot of the crypto exchanges, if, if you're making changes to your accounts, you have to jump on like this and you have to show them different you know, pieces of information for validation before they will even talk to you. Um, so I think, I think that's the difference between like a video and that real-time, which ultimately is the goal of the sales guy getting to you anyway, right? He wants to get you on a video chat to talk to you. Right, but imagine if you just had an hour a day and you did five-minute chats and the sales guy could get his message across in two minutes. You can ask your questions in two minutes and decide next steps in a minute. Where human, But we take the human out of the conversation at that point. Like I have people that schedule 15-minute calls with me. And sometimes I'm like, why didn't you schedule 30? Right, because there's the human aspect of people talking. Like where are you from? I'm from Atlanta. Where are you from? New York. Oh, wonderful. What part of New York? Right. And, you know, there's that, you know, we're humans. We're not robots. We're not trying to be robots either. Right. Yeah. I I actually did something. It was in person, though. Uh, It's a lot of Israeli security startups. This was years ago and uh, got in. And it was almost like speed dating with each one of them. Right. I've done that here, too, in Atlanta. Yeah. And, And like, you know, right away. All right. This guy has nothing. Actually. I, I walked away with that. There was like 50. I walked away and I'm like, Cyber Reason is the only company here that has a real product. Everything else was, was bullshit. And then like years later, Cyber Reason, you know. Cyber Reason is Cyber Reason. Lior does a magnificent job. The CEO over at Cyber Reason um, does a really good job. Um, I, I, I met with them um, a year and a half ago at Cyber Week in Tel Aviv. And we attended a... Uh, they had a side event for women in cyber and 80 some odd women, two men, me and Lior in the room. Right. And I'm just like, you want to know what the problem is with women in cyber folks? What? There's only two men here. Like if you want to talk about integrating women in cyber, it's not just about having a room full of women. You got to have a room full of men and women in there. And the exchange of ideas and the diversity of thoughts got to be present for people to understand that. Right. And that's significant. But yeah, I mean, I, we had something similar here in Atlanta where they came through and we had a, uh, a messaging group between all the sisters that were in the room. And 
every startup had about two minutes to come out and present to everyone kind of Shark Tank style. And then you went to speed dating. And in those two minutes, we were doing votes, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up. Thumb. And every time they got a buzzword, we had a you know bet every company like, all right, over under the buzzword, AI, six times in two minutes, eight times in two minutes. And it's a, you know, a dollar, a presentation, a pop, you know? And so, you know, it was like, there were like 17 or 18 companies. So, you know, someone ended up making like winning three of those in a row. Like he made like 50 some odd dollars. So beers were on him after, but. But my my favorite one at the whole event though, was this company, they sold threat intelligence and they claimed to have their, and the guy kept doing this. We have our ear in the criminal world on the dark web. We're like, Oh, so you're like infiltrated some of these, like, uh, like attack groups and like like you have people in there that are kind of like embedded and you're getting like real time information that's amazing and he's like no and he goes we have our ear and I'm like what are you like the the polar bear at the zoo is this the only thing you know how to <laughs> like what, what we're like what does what does that mean what what does that mean we're, we're trying to ask you a question and he couldn't answer it he kept going back to that routine and we're like all right this you literally have nothing. Like it was a good idea, but walk away. Yeah, just quit now. Quit now and walk away. So let's talk a little bit about what challenges do you see us as practitioners resolving now? What what is is there something you see us really overcoming where it's maybe passe? It's a threat that really we've diminished it to a point where it's really something we don't think about as much. I don't think anyone should think about 2FA. Like 2FA is so easy. Right. Um, you know, like anyone who says, yeah, but we're secure, we have 2FA. Um, that, that is, that should be basic foundational. Like, uh, you know, it, it should be on anything that's important to you. Right. I mean, like I, I try to tell people, like I have like 50 2FA tokens for my personal life. If you have, if you if you allow for authenticator, I'm grabbing it. Um, you know what, what I really hope we, we can overcome if we stick with two FA. Like I want to get rid of like SMS has to go away. SMS two FA is the worst thing in the world. It's cheap. I realize it. You know, it, it's a checkbox for compliance. I realize it, but it is horrible, and it's an outdated technology that is highly, you know, uh, highly. It's easy to compromise either from, you know, uh, uh, sim jacking or like uh, even the gateways have been, you know, compromised before. And, uh, you know, uh, big events have happened because of that. Um, I, I, I hope we could eventually get to the point where passwords go away, where there's like some other authentication type that is more. I don't know if it's biometric, if it's like Windows Hello or, you know, uh, Face ID or something along those lines. So I don't trust those. Okay. Um, I, 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 I'm not a big biometric guy. I've, I've researched the technology and I feel like there's aspects of biometrics which cause a greater risk rather than solve the actual problem. And where it lies is in one is who's storing the, who's storing the biometric data and how's the biometric data being authenticated, number one. Number two... What happens if someone access your biometric data? Right. 
mean, right. I guess it all depends on how, like how is it being protected and, and the assurance that how it's said or how they're actually claiming it being protected is is, is well. So, so the one thing about biometrics is it's always going to have to work on an internet connection, right? So let's say you're on an airplane and you don't have Wi-Fi for the flight. Mm-hmm. And the only way for you to authenticate is through biometrics. You've lost those productivity hours. Right. You can't access any information because you've got to be online. And let's say, for example, biometrics are continuous and internet connection is in and out. So now you're, you're, you're for, from a business operation perspective, it's very frustrating for the user. Well, I think that's where you would have to rethink how how it's stored. Like, so in in Illinois, there's 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 yeah a, the biometric yeah. right. So it ha- like it has to reside on on the device. So um, I I don't know if the architecture the way it is right now just doesn't uh, kind of fit with what you're talking about. But ideally, there is no requirement to go out somewhere for authentication. Maybe it's cached locally. Uh, stored on a chip, something along those lines. Um, but I mean, the goal is ultimately get rid of passwords, you know, it, biometric or otherwise. Like so, pass- so go ahead. Passwords are horrible. Like, like t- take, take, you know, the top 50, do, do this exercise once if, if you have the authority to do, take, take, you know, the top 50 or hundred passwords that are published, you know, every year and run it against your environment and see how many hits you come back with. How many hits for like what, what I'll give you an example. I did that once and this developer and developers, you know, I, I had great relationships with them. So I would, you know, I would go and talk to them. And one, one of their passwords was with ASDF HJKL. So I saw him at lunch and I, and I go, really? And he's like, what? I go. And he just looks at me. I'm like, that's your password. Like no effort whatsoever. I just did the keyboard swipe and you know, people, people will be lazy, like, and, and they'll, they'll do that. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a problem, not only in companies, but like, like your parents, you know, you, your friends, they, they all probably have the, the name of their dog and the year that they were born as their password. So, so biometrics today seems like a very, um, passwords are a problem biometric seems like a basic solution simply because we use it on our phones, right? So with your iPhone, you use face ID or your thumbprint Um, with, with Android devices, you use the same, that data is stored on your phone. It authenticates your face in 3d and it gives you access to your device. Most banks today use facial ID as a way to override your password for mobile banking to log in. And, and there's significance to that usage. I think there's a privacy issue with biometrics that's going to become more inherent the moment there's a biometrics breach. Yeah, I, I see that. You, you know, I, I think that's going to be, there's going to be a challenge there. I see that as being a challenge. I, I see biometrics as being another form of MFA. So maybe instead of a token, right, you've got the ability to put in a password, uh, an MFA token, uh, biometrics, 
And, you know, there, I've seen a bunch of companies at RSA last year that had a passwordless solution. Like, hey, we do a passwordless solution. It's over the air, all this kind of stuff. And I'm curious, right? We looked at passwordless solution a while ago We in, 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 in my company. And one of the reasons we ended up kind of sticking with passwords and enhancing our MFA controls was simply because the deployment and the reliability of it would hinder business operations. And I'm not like I've, you've got to weigh security with business operations. You can't frustrate your users. Yeah. Now, you, go, go ahead. ahead. I said, for any, any of these, your risk would always be like, yeah, you, you impact the business. So naturally you would have to have a fail open type scenario in case something was down. And that kind of then defeats the purpose of that control to a certain extent. If I know I could just take this off network and bypass, you know, your your MFA or whatever, uh, at that point, that control is kind of minimized to a certain extent. It is. It's it's like so so you have to look at those controls. I think biometrics with time might get better. The lack of clarity from a regulation perspective on biometrics. And the knee-jerk reactions of regulators in big breaches, and we're seeing that with solar winds now. We saw that yesterday on the Senate hearing, which, by the way, chapeau to the Senate yesterday for not getting political over solar winds. Mm-hmm. Like that was the first Senate hearing in a very long time where no one gave a seven-minute speech before asking someone a question. Right? Like I watched the whole thing end to end. Bravo. That's what we elect leaders to do. Ask pointed questions, get the facts, ask for recommendations based on what their staffers tell them, and then go do it. Chapeau. Bravo. Thank you. Right. Right. Um, but from a biometric perspective, my our concern also from a legal situation was what happens if there's a breach of, of biometric data? Right. Yeah. Uh, how liable are, are you as a company? One. Number two, what's what's it going to look like? Because the data that's being compromised is your employee data. Right. right. So you're not dealing with an external PR threat. You're dealing with an internal revolt. And it's a lack of trust on the security team. Right. right? So people are going to start looking at us as practitioners and going, we trusted you with your biometrics. You said no one was ever going to be able to get into our email if we went this way. Now our biometric data has been compromised. My face is out there for some hacker to do whatever he wants with it. I don't know what that means. I don't trust you anymore, security. Right. So we weighed all of those things, and we decided that we were just better off implementing better controls and really kind of um, exercising our security center a little bit better than we were in kind of trying to implement an overall biometric passwordless uh, solution. And I don't think it necessarily has to be biometric. Like, I mean, I, I, I love that I can come up to my Mac and and it's something you have, right? It's what something you are, something you have, something you know. If, if, if something you have, if you have a paired phone or device, like that helps as well. Um, right. In, in trading, like, because you, you also want to balance it with like, you want to be able to lock machines when people aren't there during a certain period of time, you know, in the enterprise. 
But like in trading, you also don't want a machine. You don't want someone to have to type in a 20 character password because you have that you know stringent password policy. You want to be able to log in like right away because you know markets markets move quickly. Um, and so I, I just think the overall password password itself needs to change or die or evolve. Like I said, I like the idea of of authentication um, through through other forms of it, whether it be you know a, a, an app on someone's phone, you know that you know kind of like how when you sign into Gmail, sometimes it'll send you a message on your phone that says, "Is this you trying to log in?" You hit yes, done. Right. No, that, that's that's perfect. Right. Um, I feel like that that's more effective again, but all of those solutions are available. If internet's available, if internet's not available, all of those solutions go out the door. And I think that's the million dollar thing is, can you build that technology and then can you put it on a device and can that device be secure enough to where if I'm, you know, if, if an employee loses the device, that the data doesn't get compromised on it. Yeah, that that just key management overall. Like yeah. When you talk about this, like uh, I was talking to someone, that they they wanted to move to like YubiKeys or something, and I'm like, great idea, love it. What's your onboarding process? What's your offboarding process? What's your recovery process? How are you going to secure these? Um, so yeah, like these other options do come with with different caveats and and. The things that people also need to think of. But, and again, not dismissing anything of what we just said. I gave a personal example, right? Of our kind of weighing back and forth. I think for every organization, it's a little different. You can't trade offline, right? So maybe having biometrics as an authentication for traders, which authenticates in a millisecond, is much better than typing a password, right? right? Because you're online. You're not going to trade on an airplane, you know? Flying over the Pacific. You never know. Right. True. You never know. That's so true. (laughs) You never know. But I think what, 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 uh, you know, I ranted there for a second. And so I want to kind of bring back my rant and just say this know your business. Know what, like, you can implement specific controls for different parts of the business based on their usage. And you can, like, this whole idea of I'm buying everything for everyone and everyone has right. to use it, I think is very outdated. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to identify the people who have the keys to the crown jewels and operate at the highest risk. And I'm going to secure them a little different than let's say, for example, a call center employee. Right. Yeah, I think it goes back to like one of the fundamentals of, of, like security, it's it's just don't deploy something because you had a, a talk with a sales guy. Like do your risk assessment, understand what are you protecting? Like, like going back to like, uh, what's what's the cost of a trader typing in a password versus a, a trader having a camera that does Windows hello that logs them in immediately? You know, that's how many seconds, right? How many seconds, you know, if <laughs> go back to like the GME Wall Street bets, right? How many seconds you know, if you're unable to log in to, to either make a trade or, 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 you know, buy or sell or do whatever, whatever it is you want to do, how many seconds, how much money was that? Like there's, you have to do that cost benefit analysis and that risk assessment to understand is, is this worth doing? 
and you know what are the pros and cons and what's the actual the value of it yeah that's um that's such a beautiful way of summarizing my rant thank you for doing <laughs> that ryan um so and here, sorry for my rant um i was about to go get some popcorn real quick and well it's it's i'll, I'll tell you something I get so many vendors that message me all this kind of stuff, right? And I see it on LinkedIn. And I feel like it's very misleading to a lot of people. Um, and, and part of it is because there's no one, you know, one solution for everyone's problem, right. right? One thing you said early on and you go, well, one of the things I do when I walk into a company and one of the things I'll be looking for is you know our visibility, our assets, our source, right? Our our source code, where our repositories are, right? And then I'm looking at what the, I'm and I'm identifying what figures are key. Meaning, if I'm going to do spear fishing campaigns or whale fishing or or smishing campaigns, right? Like, who are going to be my target people, right? Because you're not really going to target your you know month long call center employee who isn't allowed to have his cell phone at his desk and who's operating out of an old style desktop, right? That person is already in a very, very controlled environment, but the executive assistant to the CEO is a completely different ball game. Oh, definitely. Right? Can, I tell you, can I tell you silly, funny, Shoot. stupid, smishing, uh, no, it was a vishing campaign. So I was doing a, a, a fishing campaign against one of one of uh, the offices that we had, and it actually was quite effective. And uh, I had all the uh, fishing emails in French for the most part because they, they they spoke French in this region. Well, then I'm like, you know what? I want to use the fishing campaign, and I set it up in a way. It was it was all French Canadian, so that, that I'm like, this is going to be perfect. Well, I ended up somehow not staggering it correctly. So it went one by one by one. So it was essentially almost like a DDoS attack against the voice system for that office. Because <laughs> like, it was like one phone would ring, then the next phone would ring, then the next phone would ring. And I'm, I, was, I, I was in the office when it launched, and I'm just like, oh, my God, what did I do? <laughs> it was, but I, I still got three people to, that, that fell for it. Which, which to me blew my mind, but it also, I, I took a step back and I'm like, all right, I need to test that feature out a little bit more next time I do that um, because it, it didn't go as expected. Yeah, that's, you know, vishing is very interesting. We did that with one of our call centers and it was very interesting as well. Um, you see different results every time, but people do... You know, people do fall for stuff like this. You know, I'm. You talked about deep fakes earlier. I'm concerned with voice deep fakes, right? Um, that worries me a lot more. And there's very little I can do about it. Um, I can't listen to every call that comes into the company. I can't run a voice check on every call that comes into the company. That's just, you know, well, well just, just like voice in general, like like sim, like the mobile industry in general, like sim jacking. Like I, I got into some serious talks with some of the providers about their capabilities. And, you know, in one instance, there was this IMEI that was linked. Uh, it, one of our, one of our, uh, one of the people I know got, got compromised. They got sim jacked and luckily they were able to recover right away because we told them, you know, here's, here's what you need to do. 
and it was like perfectly executed by them. Uh, on the contrary, there, there, there is a, a BitGo article, how, how I lost $100,000 very easily uh, by this, uh, I believe he was a former product engineer for BitGo. It's a great article on how he lost all this money when his SIM got hijacked. And it's, it's great. It, it basically tells you, he's very vulnerable in this post, tells you here's basically what you don't do. But anyway, so I'm talking with this provider and I'm with their fraud department. And this IMEI was linked to, um, well, at first I'm like, hey, can you tell me when, when this switched over to this number? And the individual sighed. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? And they're like, well, it's, it's going to take a while. I'm like, why is that? Well, there's 25 pages worth of phone numbers associated with that IMEI. So I'm like, all right. I'm like, well, you're in fraud. Tell me. Don't you think that's a problem? That there's essentially 200 phone numbers associated with this one phone? And they said, well, our users use our devices in various different ways. So like we we can't do it. We didn't alert on this. I'm like, are, are you kidding me? 200 phone numbers. Um, so in the end, I, I, I walked away completely terrified with SIM jacking and, and just mobile security altogether. Um, because then also you, you try to put more controls around it. Hey, can, can there be some 2FA for that? Any changes to any phone number on this account? Can it require a push or some sort of authorization on this side? And I'm not kidding you. They said, well, there's already a pin on the account, but the pin is... It's, you know, it doesn't really, it's not enforced. They said, we will put in the notes that we should be very diligent with any changes to this account. And I go, shouldn't, shouldn't that be like one of your like core values, like that you should protect your, your customers devices. Like it, it blew me away. Yeah. Welcome to the world of wireless communications. Right. Um, And it's all, it's all like, it's it's all built on legacy technology and and it really it, it highlights with a lot of things security was always an afterthought well that- to be fair though as someone who worked for big red for three and a half years um you know a long time ago long long time ago um back then security was around um identity fraud and not around someone jacking your sim to do transactions on using your phone number for whatever other reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's very important to understand because when you're trying to protect um, financial and identity fraud, you tend to look at it a little different. Um, and nowadays with SIM jacking and SIM swapping and all of that, that seems to be an afterthought Um for a lot of organizations. And and that's one of those where I say like, have the customer do it online. What a great way to verify identity. Yeah, I, I asked for something very simple. And uh, I thought the MVM should be able to query an API from the provider side because you have all the information. You have the SIM ID, you have the IMEI, you have the phone number. You should be able to query an API and anytime any of that information has changed, alert, alert me. I want to know. I want to know like immediately because it, it could be real. Like you could ruin someone's life 
if all their information is tied to that device, tied to, you know, an SMS 2FA to their Google account, and next thing you know, everything's gone. Yeah, we, we've seen this be, um, uh, we've, I've been monitoring this in Israel, where uh, people have had their WhatsApp account taken over. Mm-hmm. And there are organizations in, you know, in the States, we don't have this issue as much because WhatsApp usage here isn't like it is in the other parts of the world. But I know of companies that run, like they don't use a Slack channel, they don't use Discord, they use WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. So imagine getting access to someone's device, changing their WhatsApp MFA, and now you're essentially sitting on that company's WhatsApp Right. Yeah, that's that's uh. Well, WhatsApp is now Facebook, right? It's it, yeah. It, it was acquired by yeah, Facebook. It was acquired by Facebook. Yeah. So you shouldn't be using that anyway. Yeah, I deleted I mean, WhatsApp. Actually, I, when when I was in China, like WeChat, WeChat, like if you if you do not have WeChat in China, or I think the other one's what QQ. Right. It, QQ, WeChat, and then they have um one more, um. Um, they use Telegram and Signal there as well, but WeChat is the the predominant one. Yeah, but it's it's everything. Like it's your wallet, it's your phone, it's your it's it's your world. It's also your social score. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so no one get any ideas, please. Um, all right, let's get into the system inside round. We're almost out of time, so right. we're way over time. Actually, not almost out of time. We're like, if people are still listening to us babbling at this point, you're brave. It it always happens, right? (laughs) It is. So let's go into the CISO Insight round. One buzzword you'd bury in my buzzword graveyard. Um, I I hate the words. um, I I almost said zero trust, even though I do hate that. I I hate military-grade encryption. I like that. I I hate that word. Um, There's that one. Um, Actually, but it's not really a buzzword. Fortunately, it's not a buzzword. I was talking with a, a vendor at one point that had an inline security device that did, you know, some sort of inspection. And, you know, naturally being in trading, one of the questions we ask is, well, what, what's the latency impact on this? And I shit you not, the guy said, zero latency. This thing is zippity quick. <laughs> and we're just like, zippity quick. Never heard that one. That's the only time I ever heard that one. So fortunately, we're not we're not hearing, you know, networking uh, providers use zippity quick as a as a marketing term. Yeah, L- lovely. What's one technology that you think is going to change the way we do cybersecurity going forward? Um, so I think once quantum computing really becomes a thing, it's going to make a lot of what we know as like core security technology obsolete. It's going to break a lot of things and, and we're going to have to rethink everything. And, and hopefully quantum computing plays a big part in that. Um, and what people also need to understand is the attackers are going to have access to this as well. So they're going to be looking for new ways to utilize this technology. So I, I think that uh, that's going to be a major, uh, a major thing that disrupts just security overall. Um, I, I do hope on a non-technical side that you know security has become like the sexy thing right now because of 
you know, it, there's you know so many jobs unfilled. You know, I, I do hope, you know, we talked about my daughter earlier. I do hope like their generation, because they've been exposed to technology and it's almost like the late seventies, early eighties with Steve Jobs, you know, and, and hacking technology, right? These kids are doing this now from a software side. You know, they're learning how to how to code in Python at a young age. You know, they're, they're learning how, how to bypass, you know, certain security controls that parents put on their devices. Like, I'm hoping that builds this, like, security culture for this next generation that, that, that will help drive this stuff forward as well. You know, survey shows that our kids, um, born 2004 and beyond, are more private online than the generation before them. I call it the adaptability to technology. So you and I were early adapters to social media. So we were like, we got it. We're like, go all in. And this next generation, our kids are the, are the age of moderation. So yeah, they're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat. But what's very interesting is now, especially COVID, I was you know at, at walking here in a shopping mall in Georgia over the weekend. And kids were not on their phones. They were all sitting around eating pizza and talking. And I'm like, huh, what was the last time I saw that? Right. Right. And, and they didn't have their phones. No one was taking a picture of the bite of pizza. They're like, take a picture of me eating pizza. Right. Um, th- that didn't exist. So th- that's a positive. What's the last book you read? Um, I read a lot of random things. So I, I'll read like five books at a time. Um, actually, so... This this book. So I don't know if you can read that. How to take smart How to take smart notes by Zonke Ahrens. It's it's life changing. And so it, it, it's like a high level primer for this method called the Zettelkasten method, which is like this old uh, this guy from the sixties. I, I believe he was like a sociologist. He he took notes in a certain way. It was almost like the Dewey Decimal System in a way. And he would have note cards and he would have things called fleeting notes, which were like just random thoughts that he would have. And he'd write them on a note card. And then he would have reference notes from, you know, content that he would read. Uh, and, and they would just be like one line. And then he would take these reference notes. And, and this is one of the key principles of the book is we really don't know anything just by reading it. We have to like reinterpret it in our own words. So like you don't really know something until you could, you know, basically teach it or, or really describe it in a way that's not just copying a note, you know, verbatim. So you, you have this thing called literature notes, which are your ideas from that content. And then he would take it one step further and create, uh, so many people have called it different things. It's, it's, it's often called, uh, evergreen notes, um, permanent notes. So basically it's taking all these then ideas that you've had, almost like linking them together and then coming up with your true thought based off of what you read. And like, that's why this, this book is, it's not that big. It's like 200 pages. Um, it's led me down a rabbit hole. So during my garden leave, like I joked about digital gardening, I've, I've uh, really started to embrace this method um, I have this whole workflow now for gathering input, not just from books, but from all this content. 
uh, and putting it into my second brain. Like there, there's this, this book will lead you to the second brain movement of like obsidian and Rome research and creating your personal knowledge management system. And it's a, it's a, it's a, an amazing book. Um, but yeah, I, I, I also just finished the, <laughs> funny we talked about zero trust. I just finished the NIST 800-207 publication. Um, <laughs> um, so like, yeah, I, I read that. I read comic books. I read um, psychology books. Um, you know, one of my favorites is Outliers from Malcolm Gladwell. Uh-huh. Um, what else have I read? There's, oh, um, is it Can't Can't Be Hurt by David Goggins? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to do the David Goggins challenge um, on March 5th, the uh, 48 and 48, running 48 miles in 48 hours. So every four hours, you do four miles. Yeah. Um, over 48 hours and i gotta get foot surgery next week wow. so that sucks well then you, then you don't have an excuse to do his uh his pull-up challenge which just sounded horrible by the way yeah he, he has challenges that i wonder like i'm like david goggins are you trying to kill me right. are you are you challenging my masculinity david goggins um because i can barely do four pull-ups at this point of my life right one of my favorite things to do though is like I'll go to the gym and I won't listen to music. I'll, I listen to his book. I'll just start it over. I don't care you know where I left off. I'll just start it over and it's very motivating uh, because yeah. his book his book you know they, they narrate the books on if you do audible and then he has like a almost like a podcast in the middle talking about that chapter and it's him and, and, and the narrator and it's 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 awesome. I love that. I'm going to tag David Goggins in this. He's got to listen to this. All right. So what's the last movie you saw? Um, watched a lot of documentaries. So uh, I'm a big comic book geek. So I, I think it was uh, Chris Claremont's X-Men documentary on Netflix. Okay. Um, his, his run on X-Men was amazing. It was, it's like my childhood. And it's the reason why I hate the X-Men movies because – I like would scream at them and be like, all you have to do is follow what Claremont did. And you would, the story's already there. It's already there. All um, the great franchises have been destroyed. Yeah. It's so speaking of destroyed, we, I, I believe we watched wonder woman 84, which was horrible. The only good part of that movie was the beginning. And then the rest of it was pointless. Um, I haven't seen it. Yeah. You don't, don't, you don't have to waste your time. So I refuse to watch sequels to initial movies unless it's the Bourne series. I think the Bourne series was probably the best one, two, three. And then they tried to do four without and, and that's just failed miserably. And then they did a five with someone else. And I'm like, what are you guys like? Who's still watching after three? Right. Yeah, have you ever watched Hostel? I don't think so. So Hostel one. It's uh, from the perspective of the, the kids getting killed, right? Like they, they go to the hostels, they get kidnapped, and you know these people kill them. Hostel Two is from the perspective of the bidders, these like ultra rich, almost like Illuminati type folks who are bidding on the kids who were kidnapped. And like it, it was awesome. At first, I'm like, this is 
it's terrifying and sick, but and, and like this has really happened. But it, it was, I, I'd give that one a shot for a, a, de- a decent sequel. I I will do that. I've been looking for something to watch. I've been watching Israeli TV for too long, for the last like, like there's a bunch of Israeli TV shows that are really really good. They're all in Hebrew. But there's a few of them on Netflix. Like Fauda on Netflix is unbelievable by far. If you want just pure action, nonstop, almost as real as it gets, really very little kind of like Hollywood effects. Fauda, F-A-U-D-A on Netflix, unbelievable. Watch it. You'll. It's a true story. Leo Raz, the guy who's the main character in there, his name's Daron. Um, that's literally what he did in the military. He wrote this show based on his military career. Hmm. So very, very cool. Um, just, just excellent series. And I watch a bunch of stuff in Hebrew with my wife simply because, you know, she likes to have a little connection back to Israel, even though we live in the States. So, you know, so we watch a lot of Israeli TV shows, which, you know, Israeli TV shows can be pretty funny. All right. Um, favorite music? Uh, I listen to a lot of random things there as well. Um, I find myself listening to, uh, there, there's a trip hop artist. Uh, it's called Nightmares on Wax. If you go on YouTube and you put on Nightmares on Wax boiler room set, like it's, it's awesome. And it could be background music and it's just this dude like creating this amazing set. The only thing that annoys me are the people. Like they look like they're not having fun behind. But like this is a live set, and they're just like look like they're bored out of their minds. There. Um, that should be something. Maybe maybe what you find interesting, the people there found boring. No, like like. <laughs> I, 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 I it's it's sad. Um, yeah, so I, I've been to. Uh, this poster behind me, I've been to 17 or 18 311 concerts. Um, but this one, uh, this one was amazing. It was my daughter's first concert. Uh, so I got the the print. This should be in her room, but she wanted it in here. Uh, but it was a 311 Dirty Heads concert. And Dirty Heads, ever since that day, I've, I've almost listened to them too much. There's another, <laughs> they're like, another like chill, like, reggae trip hop not really trip hop they're they're it's hard to describe what they are but um very like chill type music yeah 311 uh takes us all way way back yeah we found them on a mixtape like <laughs> I, I wish i could give my kids a tape like someone someone got a tape of, of them back when i was younger and they're like here listen to this you know we should do that though wouldn't that be awesome or like put it on a record right well records at least kids like a lot of people are they're, they're going back to the back. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm going back to like, what are you watching? I'm hooked on the show Ridiculousness on MTV. I, I just, I don't know. I, it's like background noise, but it's just like my one thing I indulge on and just laugh at all the time. But they had something the other day where they put a rotary phone and the guy's like, you have four minutes to dial this phone number. And the kids had no idea what, what it was they were looking at. <laughs> I almost want to do that to my kids. Be like, all right, you have to dial this number. If you get it, I'll give you like 20 bucks and see if they could do it. Yeah, but they'll probably just go to YouTube. Actually, yeah, that's that's uh, 
that's how they do figure out everything. Yeah, I mean, everything. So final thing, what's one thing you took away from SolarWinds? Uh, there are a lot of people who were using SolarWinds and a lot of people had no idea, no idea that they were using it until this happened. Like you, you heard these reports of these companies, um, you know, being uh, compromised post SolarWinds. And a lot, of the, a lot of the communication was we had no idea that we had it because someone installed it in a lab and it was accessible to the internet. And next thing you know, that got popped. And it also, like, one of the key things too is like, I don't think companies really were monitoring all that well for lateral movement um, or didn't have the visibility that they needed to into what was actually happening on their network. Um, for both, like, I mean, if a server's communicating outbound or if someone's actually connecting to a SolarWinds server, like, I would want to know right away. Um, so I, I think that those are a few of the things that uh, I walked away with. Yeah, absolutely. Great points there. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. We went way over time, but who cares? It was an awesome show. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Folks, Ryan Glover, check him out. He's LinkedIn below. His LinkedIn profile is below, so you can connect with him. Just don't try to sell him anything. Or if you do, send him a voice message. Um, And then he can curse me like day in and day out for that one. Um, Either way, folks, make sure to subscribe. Share today's show. We'll be back with more next week. We've got a lineup of special guests. And March 17th, the ultimate CISO conversation with Gray Meyer, Nick Sorensen, and the legendary Chris Roberts. You won't want to miss it. 3 p.m. Eastern time. Tune in for that. The link is also below in the show notes. Until then, folks, my name is James Cesar, signing off. Ryan Glover, our guest, and you are listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com. 